This is Friday Night Frights, brought to you by Starburst Magazine. Hello and welcome to Friday Night Frights, the weekly horror podcast from Starburst Magazine. I'm John Tolson and my guest tonight is Matt Farnsworth, director of The Orphan Killer. One night, a bad thing happened to a brother and a sister. Hang up the phone. God, please help us. It spawned a series of events. Any relatives that you know about? No immediate family. I asked around. Another case where the state's going to have to take care of the kids. That created a new horror icon. By the way, sister, how is uh, how is her brother? Marcus. Please don't hurt me. I won't forget you're my family no matter what you do. I'm afraid of him, Detective. No matter what punishment you do, he has no remorse. Jesus never left his brothers, even as he was dying. Before I cut your tongue out, what's your excuse? I was five years old. I am a messenger of pain sent to make you remember that your last name is... What I wanted to talk to you about first of all is uh, obviously the orphan killers got a lot of had a lot of attention because of its savagery because of the special effects being really good and uh, and the social media sort of marketing of it being revolutionary but actually that I think that kind of overshadows the fact that it's a very very well made film it's very well directed by yourself very well shot um by you again and edited and very well acted um especially by diane who plays audrey yeah uh, she really did a great job she's she's an amazing actress and the thing is the production values of the film are very high mm-hmm. um thinking and and you kind of sell that straight from the beginning with the, the, those wonderful helicopter shots following diane as she sort of drives home uh across, yeah. across manhattan so yeah can you tell us a little bit about the background of the film in terms of its production? Well, the film, uh, we shot that in uh, New York and New Jersey. And thank you for the compliments, by the way. That's, uh, that's really great to, to hear that you enjoyed the film. Um, we shot in New York and New Jersey. We, um, we shot with a great camera. Um, we shot with the Thompson Viper, which is a, uh, it's a 444 film stream camera. And um, I love the, the picture that it gives. Um, we, we use that camera. And, you know, Michael Mann, David Fincher, people like that use the, the Viper. And so on the technical side of it, I was always, um, I was always involved and I've always been very technical. And that's a great camera to use. Uh, the helicopter shots, that, that's the GWB as you drive from New York into New Jersey. Uh, you take the GWB, you take the Holland Tunnel, you take the Lincoln Tunnel. We happen to think that the GWB was a beautiful shot. So mm. 
you know, coming into to New Jersey, we dropped Audrey off and, uh, you know, it was, it was a great time. It was a lot of work. It was a small crew. It was probably, you know, I would say 10, 15 people actually made this movie. Um, and, 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 you know, we just were a tight knit crew who very, we were very determined and, um, you know, had great actors, uh, like you mentioned, great special effects artist, David Presto, Josh Turi, um, all of the practicals in the film were all the, I'm sorry, all of the effects in the film were, were all practical. Mm. So I think that added to the, the feeling that myself, uh, as a horror fan wanted to, I, I want, I want to, I want to see that. I want to see the practical, like, like I used to see in slashers, say in the, the eighties. Um, I, I missed that. And, and so we decided let's do everything practical and, and keep it sort of old school. And that's sort of where our roots are. And yeah. I think that the film, the film really um, resonates with a really powerful, you know, new slasher icon feeling. Well, definitely, and I mean, one of the wonderful things about the film is that it does ha- it does hark back as well to some of the sort of nineteen seventies uh, movies uh, kind of, that kind of take Catholicism as a as a theme. But um, but one of the good things about the film that makes it really stand out is just the sheer venom with which you treat Catholicism. Is this was this a, is this a personal feeling of yours, or was it just something that you thought would would make make a good screenplay? Does it come from personal well, experience? I I personally was not raised um, particularly religious, not not Catholic. My mother's father, my grandfather, was a minister, um, but uh, he they were not Catholic. Um, Diane. Uh, who is also my wife, mm. is is Catholic and was raised Catholic. So when we met, I was introduced a little bit more to that uh, you know Catholic side of life, although Diane is not religious or practices Catholicism at all. Her family still did. So when we would, we'd visit you know her her house, i would I would be around lots of Catholic people. Mm. and I have no I have no problem with, you know, Catholics, uh, in general or any, any religion. Um, I, I don't believe in it, but, um, you know, I, I accept it. And, um, it's a, it's really just a backdrop for the film. And I didn't think mm-hmm. about it really beyond that. Um, although there were some instances where, you know, I, I recognize after, you know, spending a lot of time around people who are Catholic that, and on the news, you see it, you know, I mean, <laughs> there are terrible things happening with the Catholic Church. And, you know, there's there's good reasons why um, they can't do the things that they've done. Um, and, and I think that's why you're seeing the Pope resign. Yeah. You know, I think it I think it's a sign of the times. And I think that the orphan killer has helped to, you know, even bring awareness to something that uh, needed to have awareness uh, brought to it. It's an issue. Um, and, and if anything, I think that it's, it's a great political statement. Mm. I mean, it's certainly timely, isn't it? The whole thing about, uh, abuse and so on. It's, uh, you know, it's yeah. coming out exactly at the right time. This, it but, sure is. But the, the thing about the Catholicism that ties in very interestingly, I think, to the, the kind of brutality of the film and the, the, the special effects, the practical makeup of effects, as you say, is this idea of the, this kind of scourging, scourging of the flesh, which seems to yeah. be. 
was mm-hmm. that was that a, a conscious thing uh that, nah, that, that no you did? no not during shooting it was it yeah. was in my mind i'm sure somewhere <clears throat> But I'll be honest, uh, not until the very end. Like mm. I, I did, I didn't name the film "The Orphan Killer" until after I had shot most of this. Yeah. So, so it's very interesting the way it all worked out. It was like very organic. It was, it was a hugely organic process. We, we would, we would shoot in that boiler room, and we would just, you know, start filming. And I would have a concept of special effects that I wanted created that we wanted to see this arm sawed off. Yeah. That we wanted to see her pull her arms out of barbed wire. Yeah, we knew we knew we wanted to have a screwdriver slammed into her leg, but we didn't necessarily know the method in which, you know, the orphan killer was going to go about it. He had all the tools around him. And so what I did is, is I just took the camera and I, I would I would I would do handheld or I would I would use I would hydraulic dolly and we would just sort of follow him around, follow Diane around and and say, let's, let's grab that screwdriver now. OK, now walk over with the screwdriver now and lift it up in the air. You know, we we, we talked through everything. Mm. And, um, I think it gave it sort of, sort of exactly what anyways, what I wanted to see because I knew I was going to be editing the film. Um, and I knew these segments would work very well. And then once I got back, I looked at everything we had and I said, I have to add some great dialogue here, you know, um, for, for this, these scenes. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's what I did. You know, I went and I wrote great, great dialogue for those scenes and, and it seemed to work. So it sounds as though the f- the script and the film kind of evolved in a sort of more e- organic way than might be usual on most productions. Did did you kind of start the movie without a finished script or did you have like a treatment or an outline or did you have a complete script with dialogue that changed as you as you went along? I had a I had a script, I had an yeah. entire script and I had a crew. I had a crew of like you know, 35 people. Yeah. And we went in and we shot when we shot and we shot and I didn't shoot most of it. I had a lot of animosity. I had these problems with these camera guys on set. Yeah. They, they just would not listen to me. They had these egos. I had a first AD. It's yeah. the last time I'll, it's the last time I have a first AD. Um, you know, everyone's vying to do, to be, to get their idea seen up on the screen. And mm. then we had that kind of, we had that kind of show. So that lasted for about four weeks and it, you know, thankfully at the end of it, you know, I, I went back and I had some great stuff. I had a lot of the backstory that you see. Yeah. A, a lot of steady camp shots, a lot of stuff in the orphanage, stuff with the kids. Yeah. That was used that was usable. But the guy that I had used to play the orphan killer in that filming, that round of filming, he wasn't he wasn't very good. Mm. He, he wasn't like, you know, the orphan killer that that came on next. What we did is we saw that footage, we said we don't have what we need here. This is not there's nobody dying the way we want them to die. What happened? Um, you know, there's no, there's no real blood effects. The, the camera work is not great. And I said, it looks like I'm going to have to actually do this myself, mm. you know? Um, so we went and we wrote like, you know, the, the, the eight or 10 kills you see. Um, I don't even know how many there are. There might only be seven. Um, but you see, we, we wrote all those down. We, we said we want to kill these people this specific way. Yeah. You know, we're, we're very angry about, actually we were angry. We had a lot of animosity. <clears throat> We were pissed because that first show didn't work the way we wanted it to. And I think all that sort of boiled inside of us. And we said, you know, we're going to push this through. We're going to make this work the way we want it to work. And so we went back and we shot another, you know, six weeks. Really, really scaled down. Got some of the same deals we had on the first show. Really scaled down. 
Yeah. Only that that's the 10 or 15 guys I'm talking about. And this is really where the core of the movie was shot. Yeah. Was in the was in those next 4 weeks and it was really intense. It was like every day 14 hours nonstop and and I brought that back and and when I started looking at that footage I said this is amazing. This mm. is this is just pure horror gold right here. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think what I was picking up with the Catholicism thing is about you've kind of explained where some of that feeling of that anger mm-hmm. has kind of comes from that sort of infuses in the film. So mm-hmm. because you had to go back and shoot a second time, how much of the, how much of the movie is made up of that first shoot the, 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 with the larger crew and how much of the movie is kind of made up of that, of that, those kind of reshoots that you went to do? Roughly? No, I'd say, you know, it's 80% of the film, yeah. 85% of the film is all the second shoot. Um, you know, we, we dropped 90% of that first shoot, that first yeah. shoot and, and, and just all of it became that second shoot. I think that during the second shoot, we were in one church in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And I never, I didn't like the priest at all that we were, we were there trying to work with. And, and it, frankly, one day we were there shooting, everything was fine. The next day we came back, he'd locked us out of the church. Yeah. <clears throat> And that's because the night before I had climbed up and changed some lighting in the church and he didn't want me to do that. Okay. And so he locked us out. All of our gear is inside here. we got a, you know, a million dollars worth of equipment sitting inside this building. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't let us, in. would not let us in. So <laughs> finally the police come, they let us into the building mm-hmm. and, and um, they let us get our equipment. But the priest follows Diane around mm-hmm. this church and he will not leave her alone. He's like all over her and I'm way up top trying to get lights down and stuff. And oddly enough, the guy who plays the priest in our film attacks the real priest. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And they go at it. And our real priest, uh, our, our guy playing the priest in the film punches the real priest in the stomach. And so it was, it was just a terrible, you know, event. And, And one of the reasons why I let it all go on and I was like, this, this guy really is, is trouble is I found used condoms, videotapes, all kinds of gross things upstairs yeah. in that in that area, okay, where I was doing the lighting. And from there, I, I think that I my, my because I saw it firsthand, like sort of what is going on here up here. I think I said to myself, I have to continue on with this this way. I have to fight this, and I have to I have to put this a little bit of a message in there because there is something going on, you know. Mm. That's no. just the most bizarre story and, fr- and, and mm-hmm. frightening, as frightening as, yeah. as the film itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the scene. I'll be honest with you. You probably take this as kudos and it's meant as kudos. But it's the first time I've actually had to look away from a movie in a long, long time. And obviously I watch a lot of horror movies. But this was mm-hmm. one scene I just couldn't watch and I had to look away, which was... With Diane trying to get herself free from the barbed wire. <laughs> yeah, it's it's incredible. I, I I can't even I can't even explain. I mean, I think when I first started to edit that, I was I I became immune to it. Yeah, you know, um, and and I I am immune to that now a little bit. Um, but there are people that come to me all the time who are big horror buffs and love horror film can watch any kind of horror film that say 
you know, I, I have to turn away. Mm. Um, Horror Hound magazine said it, it's, it's so good. You can't not look away. Mm. Um, even though you, you try at times, I think the first time seeing it, definitely the barbed wire pullout is, I think the pinnacle of the, the, um, intense, intense gore. This, there's um, something know. about doing it to yourself that's more difficult to watch than seeing it being done to somebody else in a movie. That's, that's of, true. Yeah. But what I wanted to ask you was kind of what stage in the film did you decide that you were going to go for something that extreme in terms of the, the gore content of the movie? When did you kind of think to yourself, right, this is it, I have to sort of push the boundaries with this film? Well, I think that came about because I, I had hired um, I had David Presto and I and, and Josh Turry decided to work together. And because David could only handle certain parts of the effects due to his time, okay, his schedule, um, and then Josh Turry also only had a certain amount of time. And I liked both of them. And they both kind of wanted to do the job, and, and so they were trying to one-up one another a little bit, I think. Hmm. Okay, there was like almost like a little miniature, not not a real competition, but a small amount of competition between these two guys. And I, I liked that, and I sort of you know, fostered that feeling that they had, and they really created some amazing, amazing effects. And I had planned to go with some really heavy, hardcore effects right off the top. And when we, when we drew, when we sat down and we did all the storyboarding mm. for the kills... We were very specific that the machete was going to go through the front of the face, that the, the, the head was going to open up in the back. We were real. We were, we were absolutely sure we were going to use cow brain. Yeah. Uh, we knew that, you know, her her arms and the barbed wire. We knew that that was going to be just absolutely horrific. We we knew that we were going to build prosthetic heads for, you know, anything that that had to be hit hard and make sure that it looked it looked real. And we used. We knew we had a, we had about sixteen gallons of blood on set, so we were ready to go. And we've already kind of mentioned the fantastic performance of Diane uh, in the film, but at what sort of stage was she involved in the in the in the project? I mean, obviously you're, she's your wife, so she would have known about the project and kind of be involved. But uh, what kind of input did she have into the characterization? Was this something that started during the script writing? Did you kind of discuss it? Did she kind of contribute to the characterization at that stage? She, she's on the, um, she's on the entire show. Yeah. She's, I mean, as I conceive it, she's there listening to the very first things I say about mm. it. Um, uh, and then, and then also after, you know, I create it, she reads everything. Um, she talks to talks with me about it. I would say she, she helps to really, you know, write some elements of the, the movie. I mean, I would say the core initial concepts and things and, you know, the initial spark definitely comes from me, but she's definitely a muse and she definitely helps guide me along. And, and also in the producing aspect, she's a producer. So mm. a lot of the locations, a lot of the things that we, you see in the film were locked down personally by Diane. So um, she was sort of the locations person and she would go and do the meetings um, to, to, to meet with city council or people that she needed to meet with in order to get the proper uh, clearances for those things. She handles that very well. Uh, much better than I do in that case. Um, although I'm, I'm pretty good at negotiating deals as well as a producer yeah. and being, being able to, to get what we need. And then on top of that, she's a great actress and she does, you know, she, she acted with, um, Anne Hathaway growing up. Um, she, her and Anne Hathaway were 
um, always competing in mm-hmm. high school. In fact, mm-hmm. they competed for the, uh, there's a very big award in New Jersey called the Rising Star Award, and that is a statewide award that is given to the best uh, female performer performance in a high school play in the state of New Jersey. And her and Anne were up against each other the same year, and um, they're both their senior years, and, and Diane defeated her, mm. and um, which I find so funny because Anne just won an Oscar. Um, but, you know, Diane is just so more real, so more gritty, so more amazing. And, you know, it just shows the caliber that, that Diane is working at. She, she sort of didn't go for the whole, you know, I'm going to go do a cheesy TV show. I'm going to go do this. Diane did the path of I'm going to be a real actress. I'm going to be a real person. I'm going to have a real family. And I'm going to, uh, you know, be a, a horror icon. And I think that she really loves being a scream queen. And I think she's she's done it really well. I just think her, her characterization is really interesting and sort of spot on. The idea of a sort of Catholic girl kind of rebelling slightly, but but also still wanting the... Um, the security of stay, hanging around, staying around the orphanage, you would have thought that she would have disappeared sort of years ago. But it's, it rings very true. Yeah, she's, she does that well, you know. That, that town where we shot, that is her hometown. Mm. So we, we were able to get into different locations and places um, because of, of that. And Diane is very personable, you know. So people love Diane and... Um, she she does come across that way somebody you really like um you know on screen and she's uh, she's attractive so it definitely it definitely works i just wanted to mention something that martin said in his review in at starburst it was just a slight bit of criticism that he aimed at the at the soundtrack um and his, mm-hmm. i think what he was criticizing was that sometimes you would use the kind of heavy metal music um, during the kills, and he felt that 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 had uh, sometimes distract, kind of distracted from the the kind of suspense of the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. W- uh, what stage did you kind of decide to use the music in that way? Well, I I had some slower paced stuff there. I had some more intense, like. <clears throat> I had some intense drones, some intense sounds, and, yeah. and some some composition yeah. there in those places. But frankly, it got very, very. Um, it would get too slow, and that when you yeah. when you cut a when you cut a film, there's a pacing, okay, in, within within the editing process, and and you have to find that pace. And when you find that pace, you kind of have to stay with that pace. Mm. And so the issue that I was having is is it would become like slower and then the kill, the, the, it wouldn't, wouldn't be as intense. And, and, yeah. and for those scenes where he's knocking down doors and, and even in the, in the, in the boiler room, we needed to, we needed to jumpstart people, I felt, mm. uh, and, and keep them, keep them in, in this. Because if you notice, there's not a lot of dialogue. Mm. I mean, in, in the boiler room, they're not talking a lot and there's not a lot of heavy action in the boiler room. Mm. Um, and so I felt it stimulated and, and I did a test screening in New York and at the test screening, someone from, um, a friend of mine from a music company in New York, um, 
primary wave music said, you need to get some hard music in here. You know, you should, you should test this. Mm. Um, he, he had an end to a company called Treskill and Bullet Tooth Records. And I got in contact with Josh, uh, Josh Grabel. He's the um, CEO of Bullet Tooth. And he sent me a bunch of music and he said, check out, check this stuff out and, and try, try putting it in and see how it works. And I thought, this is great. This is hard. It's hard edge. It's hardcore. It's contemporary. And it, it sort of does something that no other slasher has done before, which is, is especially in, in this style with the masked killer and all this is go really heavy with the music. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I did, and, you know, it sort of turned it into this, you know, quasi, you know, slasher icon slipknot uh, type, sure. type, um, type killer. And, um, people love it. I think it were I think it kind of works in an interesting way because it, you've got that ca- kind of cath- cath- you know the Catholicism theme and it sort of contrasts with that there's almost mm-hmm. a kind of slightly sort of satanic aspect to it yeah in terms I do of the, love that. in, t- in terms of the music that kind of bring yeah. brings the kind of I don't know the I suppose the evil of the evil of Marcus out you know it's kind of like his his kind of dark heart coming out in terms of the music so I think it's you know really kind of interesting counterpoint to the to the themes of the film to use the kind of heavy metal music that way. That's true. The dark heart. I, I hadn't really thought of that, but I it does sort of bring out that dark side in in, in sort of a burst. Um, Marcus does have a dark heart. He's got a black heart, and mm. I think that you know you see that. And I think the Catholicism, albeit okay, it, there's there's a lot of bad press about. Catholicism right now, um, but there's a beauty mm. to Catholicism and yeah. the movies, okay, and the actual the actual visual that Catholicism has set aside the religion part of it. I mean, just the look, the church, mm. the the altar, the um, the whole the whole concept of you know giving communion, the whole the whole the outfits they wear. I mean, they're ridiculous. Mm. Um, you know, I think that it. it it looks gothic, and I think that it really, you know, I think that I think that is one of the reasons why I did choose to set that as more of a backdrop because I did find it to be an interesting, an interesting look and a gothic look and something that would work really well with horror film. Mm. And I think the the way you shoot it actually plays towards that aesthetic as well. You were saying about there's a certain beauty about Catholicism, and I think you follow that through very well in in the, in the in the direction of the movie and in the cinematography of the movie. And I noticed that your camera is always moving and there's a yeah. certain, there's a, there's a beauty in that. There's, there seems to be no reason for it apart from just the sheer kind of aestheticism of moving the camera, which adds to the kind of sort of terrible beauty in a way of the whole film. Yeah. I think that I'm a little bit, uh, I was very novice. I mean, I, I had shot a documentary and I, I went into shooting this film and I said, just put the camera on my shoulder. Okay. Mm. And I think that I actually have, I'm not, I, I think I'm actually just like a little bit off in terms of the way I work with the camera. I'm always sort of moving. I never stop moving. And so my shoulder is always kind of moving just a little bit. Like, yeah. and so if I'm not shooting it and like if my, if my first, if my first AC is shooting something, the guy at the monitor will say, Matt, you have to shoot it. You have to put the camera back on your shoulder. And I'm like, why? It's great. And he'll say, no, there's just this little tiny slight movement yeah. that, you, that you do that is changing the feeling. Yeah. And so 
some somehow. I mean, I've never had any formal training in terms of you know being a cameraman um, on my film Iowa, which was yeah. you know I shot. Uh, I didn't I didn't shoot that film um, on Iowa. You know, I I worked with film, but I had never done anything with digital, and um, it made, it was a lot easier for me to work digitally. Mm. And so I don't know. I just picked up the camera, and I've been very fortunate with being able to um, do handheld work, being able to quickly learn how to swap out lenses, quickly learn all of the the, the camera practices, and, and you know, it's been a great experience. So let's talk a little bit about this sort of the the, the, the marketing campaign because it is pretty revolutionary. What can you what can kind of can you tell us about that? Your use of social media and. Uh, your decision not to go with a distributor up to this point. I I just think it's it stems probably from you know a form of you know oppression in a way. Um, mm. You know, I'm on our first film Iowa. I think that there were it was a big Tribeca Film Festival hit. Um, you know, it had all kinds of press about it. However, the Hollywood studio system, you know, didn't pick it up. I didn't feel like the way they should have. And, and so I think there was immediately this thing that I said, well, I don't understand this. And I, I did a deal with a distributor finally on Iowa Mm. and this is getting somewhere, I promise. And, and and I just could not find, it, it was never the right deal. Like the distributor, it never, never panned out the way it should for an independent filmmaker. I mean, sure. There was some money made on the film. It was released theatrically and it went out all over the place, but nobody kept pushing for the film. Yeah. After it had already been released, it was like two months later, it was in the $2 bin at Walmart, and that is over. And then they own the film for seven years. Mm. Mm. So nobody's pushing for your movie anymore, even though it's a piece of art. You yeah. know, here's something that you made. It's a piece of art. We're going to promote it for a couple months. We're going to own it for seven years, though. We're going to stop promoting it after a couple months. Yeah. And then we're going to just not you're not going to know what's going on with it. Our company might even change hands. Somebody might buy our company. We don't, we're not going to be talking to you at all. And that's really how that system works. So I learned that pretty, pretty early on. Yeah. And with with this film, I said I love this movie. Like The Orphan Killer is, it's a great movie. I know it's a great movie. Um, Iowa was a great movie. But the Orphan Killer is an iconic movie. Mm. And I said this is a great film. I have to I have to do something with this. I'm going to keep this. I'm not I'm not just going to give this away. Yeah. And in the time that I made Iowa, between between then and now technology has changed so much Mm. that people have access to cameras and everyone is making a movie and everyone is giving movies now to Hollywood studios. So, you know, they, they've, they've got their content because a lot of first time filmmakers are putting all their hard earned passion, energy, family, money, their money into making a film thinking as soon as I get a distributor, I'll be paid back Mm. and everybody will be happy. That's not exactly the case. Mm. Now they're, you know, Hollywood knows that, and they're preying upon independent filmmakers, taking their movies for free, and you know they're never going to see a dime after that. Ninety-five percent of the time, ninety-nine percent of the time. So, what you have to do is, I, you have to realize that, and you have to just say, I've got to do something different. I have to create something, and I have to find a platform to show people, and social media was the absolute perfect platform. You know, it was, it was available to me. It was, it was free to start uh, marketing the film and creating a page. And we did that 
And, uh, you know, Marcus is still on there today talking to fans every day. Mm. Just through the sheer frustration of uh, from your first film of just knowing that it was tied up with the with the distributor and they weren't marketing it as well as you could have marketed it yourself. Correct. Yeah. So will you make your money back, though, for the orphan killer or have you made it back already? Well, we've sold quite a few out of the store, but um, we have not made our money back on the film. Mm. Um, although I'd say we're doing very well, considering we haven't released the film yet. Yeah. So, you know, it's never been anywhere. Uh, you know, nobody can access it unless they order it from our store. And nobody really knows. You know, I mean, nobody knows that platform. It, you know, our store is not a platform people typically go to and buy a product like Amazon or iTunes. Hmm. So we've decided to launch on iTunes and Amazon, and next month the film will launch on iTunes, and then shortly after it'll be you know streaming on Amazon HD, and um, from there we'll move forward with probably other platforms. You know, yeah. I, don't, I, yeah. I don't know when, but at least we're going to try. We're going to do a nice pitch. We've got a great company we're working with here in LA mm. um, that I like uh, called Bitmax, and they are an aggregator to iTunes and Amazon. Mm. And they're looking to start promoting, you know, films like if they, they see a couple they really like, um, iTunes is, you know, offering them a favor to, you know, list that film up there in that new and noteworthy section and, and try to get us some recognition. And so that's really what I'm looking for is, you know, for, for people to get eyeballs on the film and, and mm. rent it. So your model of distribution is is more akin really to sort of modern music's model of distribution than it is akin to kind of movies distribution or the way that movies are distributed at the moment. Because obviously in the music business, you know, people are downloading uh, stuff for free, but um, um, whereas, yeah. you know, the record labels are losing a little bit of money from that way, it's, or they're gaining as much as they're losing because um, the sheer sort of uh, publicity... Uh, and uh, a sort of word of mouth and the sharing and and uh, the attention that goes to the tracks through the social media it just it makes people aware of uh, the artist's work in the same way that social media has made you know millions of people aware of uh, the orphan killer who wouldn't have been made aware of it otherwise yeah no they wouldn't yes. have. you're absolutely right yeah. but, but, we've got yeah, 3 million downloads so yeah it's crazy but for all of those million free downloads, or that you know that you haven't made money from, you'll be making money because people know about the movie. So when it does come out, people will know about it. I think you're right. I really do. Um, I I tell all independent filmmakers who ask me, um, how do I how do I make it successful? You know, how do I protect myself against piracy? And, and I, I I've been saying lately, you know, I would say make something that people want to pirate. Um, you know, get it out there because the power that piracy has is the power. If you've made a product that is that good, can can bring you a lot of attention. Mm. And I think that it's brought us a lot of attention. From like you were saying, you know, millions of people know about this film, yeah. and that would not have been possible uh, any other way if a studio had released it. I don't believe that their marketing efforts would have been as good. And also there's the issue of censorship, isn't there, which uh, obviously we need to talk a little bit about 
Um, what's, ha- what's happened with Germany, you sort of banning the movie. Yeah. Uh, I'd ve- be very, very surprised that here in Britain your film would get past the BBFC's uh, scrutiny because of the sort of extremity of the, of the violence in it. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So obviously the piracy route and so on—that's a way around the sort of censorship issues, isn't it? But have have you had sort of have you had to talk about toning the movie down for the DVD release? No, I haven't had that discussion. Um, I just—I'm not really open to uh, to discussions about it uh, until maybe the future. But I know that can ruin a movie. Um, yeah, especially this kind of movie. You know, that's not what this is meant to be. And and I really don't – I don't think it's that much more graphic. I mean it is graphic, but not more so than, say, Hostel or some of those other films. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's so much – the acting is, is much stronger in The Orphan Killer mm-hmm. that it makes you feel that much more. When Diane is performing those things, it, it, it feels real because she's very good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that people get a real visceral feeling from the film, and that freaks them out more than the actual gourd that they're seeing. Um, you know, I think Germany did me a favor, frankly, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> banned the movie, you know, okay, yeah. I mean, horror fans love banned movies. So look, I'm just trying to ride this this wave and I, I'm trying to, to bring fans what they want and, and I'm, I'm trying to continue to make sequels because a lot of people are asking me for sequels and things. And, you know, and the piracy is great, the... The ban is great. And now, you know, like I said, I think it's going to be in the UK on iTunes. So, yeah, you know, I think I think it's going to be I think it's going to be OK. I think we're actually going to get past that and it's going to it's going to be on iTunes. And I hope people rent in the UK on iTunes because a lot they would they would love this film. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, uh, in, you know, in terms of the BBFC, whether it, it could be the movie that really that kind of starts taking censorship towards online censorship in a big way in terms of movies and what's available sort of to download from sites like iTunes and so on. Yeah, let's hope that doesn't happen. Well, let's hope so too. Let's hope so. Did you ever find out kind of officially why Germany banned the film? Uh, Glorification of violence. Right. Uh, They they said that I was youth endangering. Yeah. Yeah. which I, I think is ridiculous, but you know, it, it's, it's fine. It, it's, it, I got a long letter. It was, um, you know, six page letter or something saying that, um, I can't, we can't distribute the movie there. Mm. Uh, pe- people can buy the film in Germany mm. from the United States and have it shipped. Mm. That's it's, it's not illegal to do that, yeah. but it is illegal for anyone in Germany to distribute the film. Now, that being said, I have had I've been approached by a film company uh, in Germany, eight films, and uh, I'm working with uh, Steve there, and he is doing a release in out of Austria to Germany and to uh, German speaking German speaking Switzerland. Yeah. So the film will be there, and it's going to be in a uh, Blu-ray disc in a like a media kit where you get like a a cool box with Uh you know a photo booklet and you know i'm going to hand i've handwritten a letter that uh, is going to be printed and put in in the uh in the film so it should be really cool that'll that'll include the soundtrack as well so we'll see what happens i mean he's willing to take the risk to distribute it there um yeah because he feels like there's such a market for the film so we'll see what happens 
It sounds like a great package that you're putting together over there. So let's talk a little bit about the plans for the sequel. I mean, you've already mentioned that you've got maybe two or three sort of sequels in mind. But do you you think that the kind of any sequels will kind of go along more traditional routes in terms of funding and distribution and so on? Or are you keen to kind of stay outside of the... uh, outside of the sort of mainstream funding and distribution networks? That's a difficult um, thing to answer because, you know, while I, I do want to make the sequel, you know, in the next year, I, I, I'm, I'm always a little bit leery of, you know, working with the studio system to start. Not that I'm completely against, against that, but it, it might not turn out exactly what I'm trying to turn out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and so I... I I hopefully what I'm hoping is is that uh, we can get a lot of rentals of the film. I mean, three million people have downloaded the film, and if those, what the companies feel that I've been talking to is that those three million illegal downloads and rising show a very strong demand in the digital marketplace for this film, Hmm. and so we're hoping that we can monetize the film, and at that point, I would just executive produce the next film. And I would make the film myself and go ahead and take that risk. And I would, you know, continue to do this exact same model that I'm doing now. So it's all sort of up in the air right now over the next six months, year, to see how that builds. We do have the official mask being released by Trick or Treat Studios in the United States. And that is going to go into stores in October. Uh, before then, uh, September, and that's going to be in like Amazon Hot Topic. Um, there's some big stores in the UK and Europe as well, some mask stores, uh, costume stores. It's going to be in. It's going to be in Party City, Spirit, Halloween, uh, it's Halloween Town. I forget the exact name. So it's going to be in a lot of stores, and it's going to have a tag on the mask that says "Get the movie on iTunes." You know, get the movie on Amazon. So we're hoping that this whole push can can bring in some revenue that would allow us to make uh, make sequels. If not, we are also in talks with different people to not only do web series, but, but the sequel as well. For more information on the movie and how to view The Orphan Killer, visit the movie's website, theorphankiller.com. Friday Night Frights. Well, that's it for tonight's Friday Night Frights. But don't forget you can reach me via the Starburst website or on Twitter at Starburst underscore mag. Until next time, stay Stay scared. scared.